Hi everyone. Thanks for being here. So I want to begin by acknowledging that we're all on the ancestral home of the Tonkawa people. And uh, through, through uh, uh, the influence and uh, effects of uh, colonialism, uh, they were um, forced out of their ancestral home and uh, there's not hardly any left and the few that are left are uh, probably in Oklahoma I think they ended up so for us to hold in our hearts the responsibility of um, um, inheriting a home uh, on the heels of other people being driven out from it so there's this story well, first, there's this word. Before the story, there was the word. There's this word in Sanskrit called upaya. And upaya is often, in, in Buddhist context, it's often translated as skillful means. But when you look at a Sanskrit dictionary, it also has the word trick <laughs> in there. You know? And um, it means uh, doing what works doing what works and um, there was a when I I was gosh how when was that about 2013 or so I was I had already had a center in New Orleans for a couple of years and we were trying to kind of really grow it and we got a grant and part of the grant was to help get, stay you know get a get a house for the place and and um, and to pay me to be the full time priest, which I think I t we talked to the board and we decided that I would have a stipend of seven hundred dollars a month, and that would be my my head head priest salary, you know. But also there was a stipulation, and I'm like, I want to go to an ashram, and I want to train in hatha yoga. So they, I think it was maybe two thousand dollars or something like that. So we got this money put allotted for me to go to. Valmarin, Quebec, um, and I spent a month camping at this ashram, and there was 79 of us, 70 women, 9 men, at this ashram, and we all got white pants and bright yellow shirts, and we followed the ashram schedule, and then we got trained in this really simple 12-posture yoga sequence, you know, and then we'd have Bhagavad Gita class every day, and we'd have... Uh, morning and evening satsang which involved kirtan which is like where you do the call and response chanting with the harmonium and the kol drum or the murdanga drum and you're chanting all the names of God and then we would have classes on Vedanta and, uh, and particularly the Advaita Vedanta which is the non-dual Vedanta school which is super duper similar to Indian Mahayana but there's one little difference well, there's a few differences, but there's one little difference in the final kind of philosophy, you know. So Nagarjuna in the Indian Mahayana school says, um, there is nothing but contingency. You know, there's not, everything is cause and effect. You can't point to a thing that isn't cause and effect. Whenever you say there's a thing, that thing has, a, has was came into being and has a disintegration, you know. So this idea of radical contingency, that everything's this thing that's in flux and then the uh, after him and and supposed you know 
somewhat clearly influenced by this thought. Because like, all these schools are kind of competing with each other and debating with each other. But when someone has this brilliant idea, the rest of them can't ignore it. So uh, South Asian religious traditions are this way of kind of like sneaking, you know, over the course of their centuries, sneaking in ideas from other schools, but dressing it up like your school a little bit, you know. So when someone has this kind of like hard to argue with idea of, of radical contingency, it's kind of like, okay, how do we align that with our tradition? You know, and so there's this teacher, uh, kind of considered the founder of the non-dual school, Shankar, uh, Shankaracharya. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things aren't as they seem. Everything's a composition. But what everything's made of it is, is this divine energy called Brahma. And you yourself are this manifestation of divine energy of Brahma. And coming from my Buddhist background, I'm hearing this and I'm like, you guys, come on. You know, it's a little bit like, uh, it's like that's for people that don't want the cold, hard fact of emptiness. <laughs> and and, and uh, in Buddhism, we don't need any of this nicey-nicey stuff of calling it Brahman, calling it divine and stuff like that, where we, we just say what is. Nothing but contingency, you know. But then when you go back to Dogen and you look at Dogen fascicles like Zen Ki, which is called Total Dynamic Functioning, and he talks the mystery of like, why would, why would two rocks smash into each other and then you fast forward a billion years and then there's fish and they have eyes because they wanted to see, you know? Because there was a desire there. Like eyes grew because there was a desire, you know, the photosensitivity, there was a desire for life there. There's a desire for movement there. There's, there's an urge to move away from the teeth of the other fish. You know, and I keep talking about it, but, and I know it's weird, like, why is he going on about this houseplant? You know? But like, and the, and the houseplant's leaning towards the window with the, where the sunlight comes in. You know, what is that? You know, if you dissect the houseplant, do you find that kernel of that desire to exist in that way? You know? And so for all of the sophistication of the Mahayana emptiness, I'm like, we don't necessarily account for that, you know? And sometimes it's accounted for in early Buddhism, like, well, it's your karmic tendency of, of, of thirst for continual existence because you're addicted to samsara, so you lean towards the light. That's a view. Um, <laughs> You, so in terms of upaya, in terms of the skillful means, it's like, what, what point of view gives you the life that you want? You know, truth aside, we'll, you know, what point of view gives you the life that you want? What was your intention in getting into this stuff in the first place? You know? So I'm over at this ashram and I'm thinking I'm so sophisticated. And I'm like, we don't need all of this singing songs and we wear black and, you know, and then, but day after day, you know, when the med you, instead of doing shikantaza, you're meditating on, oh, and you're feeling this whole vibration through your body, you know, and then they turn the lights up a little bit, and then you hear the harmonium start, and you hear the swami go, 
Jaya Ganesha, Jaya Ganesha, Jaya Ganesha, Pahimam, Shri Ganesha, Shri Ganesha, Shri Ganesha, Rakshamam. And then all the assembly. Jaya Ganesha, Jaya Ganesha. And it's 6 a.m. and people get up and they dance. You know? And then they have, okay, everybody stand up for Arati. And then they put, there's a little, and if you go to like, uh, sometimes even at a grocery store, if you go to Ganti Bazaar up north, that you see there's a whole section with all of your altar stuff or your home pujas. And they have a little brass lamp and there's little divots in it and you put a little wick and you put butter in there and it's this beautiful lamp. And if you go to like Varanasi or any of the cities that have ghats that are on a sacred river, there's a ceremony at dusk every night of, of doing arati for the river. Because the river's the deity. You know? The river's the deity. You know, what is so... We could think... You know, if you have a, if you grew up in a, in a Western religious worldview, and you think, well, and you have this idea of when people in other cultures or people in a culture that you're not familiar with are talking about God, or people from a religion that was born of another worldview, you know, when they're talking about God and you're talking about God, that you're talking about the same thing. You know, it's like, no, I don't believe in that man in the sky. It's like, no, they're doing offerings to a river. You know, so what does divinity mean? You know, it's. Uh, it's an attitude towards the manifest world. You know? And what does it do to your heart and mind to have this sense of reverence and appreciation and adoration towards the manifest world? You know, as one of uh, Radhanath Swami said, when you adore manifest reality as Krishna, Krishna loves you back. Krishna adores you back. And I remember hearing that one time and I'm sitting on my little deck at Green Gulch and I'm looking at the mountains and I just tried to adore them a little bit and they adored me back you know and it wasn't a, and, and I got that grace of feeling at home in the world without realizing all the ways that I'm confused and figuring out how I'm deluded and figuring out how I'm making up my own reality and that I need to what do we say sometimes at Zen centers those awful things we say to each other let go of your stories or whatever you know I was just loving reality and it loved me back and that gave my life the spoonful of sugar that it needed you know and um, and that spoonful of sugar is the upaya the skillful means so they do the ceremony, they do the arati, and it's beautiful. And they go, Jai Jai Arati, Vigna Vignayaka, Vigna Vignayaka, Sri Ganesha. And they're going around to all the deities and offering them light. Then they turn towards the assembly and they put the light. And everybody puts their hands and moves the light to parts of their bodies, you know, their head, their heart, their eyes. And then there's a song to uh, calling God your mother, your father, your wisdom your friends, your wealth, your family. It goes, Tvameva mata chapita Tvameva Tvameva bandus chasaka Tvameva Tvameva vidya dravinam Tvameva Tvameva sarvam mama deva deva And then they say, Prasad will be given at the door when you leave. And you leave and there's a big silver platter and there's two people and their bright yellow shirts and their bright white pants, and they have dates and and strawberries and almonds and orange wedges, very very humble. That have been on the altar throughout the whole service, and then you get a little piece of fruit, and then you leave and you go about your day. 
you know? And you, day after day of doing this for a, twice a day for a month, I'm just like, <sighs> I love this. The, pre- the you know, the, um, the warmth of it, you know? And, like, and I'm at the philosophy classes, and I'm kind of like, yeah, but regard, you know, but emptiness. And I'm like, how do I want to feel, though? And after a while, I just couldn't fight. You know, I couldn't talk myself out of the, that the world felt like a, a place that was finally like a home for me, where I think a lot of my life it felt like some kind of weird mistake. You know, little things would have, you know, I, I could be feeling kind of a nice way, Usually because some something self-gratifies. Someone liked my band or something like that. Or, you know, I landed a sick grind that weekend or something like that. Because I'm from the 90s. And we used to land sick grinds a lot in the 90s. Um, this is, these are skating terms. Um, <laughs> but then I'd see, you know, an empty Pringles can on the ground. And I'm just like, we're all going to hell. <laughs> You know, so um, giving yourself the parenting that you needed as an adult by enlisting the gods as a loving family. You know, and what are the gods? You're anthropomorphizing all the benevolent aspects of what exists here in the world because it's hard to, you know. the trees turn your exhaust back into fuel for you that sustains you. And it's in, you can say, okay, well, I love them for that. But it doesn't necessarily quite evoke the emotion if you say, well, I love, and you picture this perfect, handsome, you know, blue person, you know, playing a flute or with some animals around or something like that. So you're anthropomorphizing the grace of existence and having a little bit of a relationship with it. So you can, you're kind of laundering your own emotions. You're taking your own kind of frustration, confusion, seeing the world doesn't seem to quite work right. And you're sending that to the deity by loving it, and then you're getting it back. And if the, per, and if the form deity doesn't work for you, that's okay. You can, you, can, you can feel the divinity in the river, feel the tree. Just figure out what, what gives you access to that feeling of grace and belonging in this world so that the world feels like a benevolent place, you know? And it's available, and that's why, we're, why I talk about the river of joy. You know, there's um, this kind of nectar flowing through your system that if you stop thinking about the world as you know it and start to forge that connection with it, it can sustain you throughout your day. And then the things that come up, you kind of relate to it like a, like a parent of a young child, you know. If you overwatch parents, or if you have the gift of being one, or the mixed gift of being one, um, there's this kind of beautiful kind of, um, I'm with you, but I'm not fully bought in when, when the kid's having like, kind of like a, like a hard time or an episode. It's like, yeah, I know, that sounds kind of hard. And then sometimes the, the parent will kind of look at the friend and like smile. It's like, isn't he cute? He's really frustrated, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or something like that. And to relate to ourselves like that, you know, we're sitting here we're like, ah, bodies are the worst. Isn't this awkward? You know, I feel it doesn't, it just never feels centered or something like that, you know, or one foot's asleep or whatever. And then you, and then you look to your body like it's the toddler and just be like, I know, it's really hard. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
you know and it's so much easier to just like get on with it you know instead of like yeah that means something's wrong you know because that means something's wrong is just is is a fabricated belief so if we think well all of this god stuff's a fabricated belief and it's like well okay we want to start abandoning fabricated beliefs what else you got what else have you been thinking you know so do you have do you have a do we want to have beliefs that nourish us you know and that give us in touch with something that feels like kind of on to on point for us in in life giving you know or do we want to do the you know are we insisting on the cold hard fact of emptiness and it's like is your idea of emptiness really the whole cold hard fact of reality you know so that per, uh, that's why uh you know dogen they talk about the sanshin uh, joyful mind nurturing mind magnanimous mind that nurturing mind sometimes gets translated as grandmother mind you know so you know, some of us had great parenting, some of us had so-so parenting, some of us had truly damaging parenting. And we're uh, autonomous beings now, to a certain extent. I mean, no one's ever autonomous autonomous. But what, did, what, what were you missing, and how can you start to cultivate that in your own life? And the, team, and the way that, can, do you talk to yourself the way harmful people talk to each other, or do you talk to yourself the way loving people talk to each other? So in my job, I get to talk to people about what they're going through a lot. And it's overwhelming. And I feel this myself. I'm not like the people I talk to, poor them. But like me, I get this. You know, but it's like, I think there's sometimes, in our culture, there's this like kind of belief that if we really put ourselves through hell, we'll, get, we'll, we'll become better people. You know, if we don't forget how screwed up we are then we're going to transform ourselves just through like being really aware of our awfulness. It's a really strange supposition. And it works its way into our religion. And if you have that as your underlying predisposition, it's going to be corroborated by your encounter with Buddhism or Christianity or whatever. There's a graceful aspect to every tradition. And then there's, if you're up for it, if that's what you're habituated to look for. My first 10 years of practice, I only wanted the texts that were scolding me. I love, there's a text called Shobo Genzo Zui Monki by Dogen. It's called, Zui Monki means the Shobo Genzo that's easy to hear. And it's all these informal talks by Dogen that's like, you people are truly stupid. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. You know, then I can really change. You know. And it's like, the stakes are too high to not do what works and not do what makes you feel better about being a person. The stakes are too high. Yeah. And, and like for me, like being so inspired by the South Asian traditions and the Vedanta traditions and the yoga that I encountered and doing, wanting to do mantras and then coming from a tradition where all that stuff's kind of naughty, you know, and like kind of wrestling with that for a long time. Look at my outfit. Look at that color in a zendo, you know, but at a certain point, I'm like, am I going to keep being a good Zen student or am I going to do what make what? For, give resources me adequately to be the person that I want to be in my life. You know, and if doing the mantras and if loving God and if wearing uh, hot orange, um, electric orange, makes me, makes me feel better when I look at myself, when I regard myself, I don't have to do this kind of marathon of like, well, I'll jump over the hurdle if I just, you know, keep my nose to the grindstone. 
you gotta you gotta do what benefits you. you. You have to, and you can't worry about whether it fits in with the orthodoxy or not. You know. There's a story of uh, I forget I didn't I didn't I thought about talking about it and then I kind of like didn't research the details so it's not going to be the detailed version of the story it's going to be the I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend version of the story but it's a story in the in the South Asian tradition that there was a prince that was seven years old and they were having a play like a big performance and there was a part of a princess in the performance and. Uh, the queen said, we'll dress up the prince. And he's, you know, fair and young and beautiful, and he'll look like a princess. We'll put makeup on him, we'll put a dress on him and everything. And so they had this play, and the little prince played the princess, and they're like, oh, he looks so good, let's do a portrait of him. You know, so there's this painting, the, you know, the court painter did, painted the prince, and he signed and dated it. And then you fast forward another, you know, 14 years or something like that. And the prince is going through storage of some sort, and he sees this painting. He's like, who's this princess? <laughs> He's like, you know, 1285, that was just, that was 15, we're the same age. You know, what print, you know? And, um, and then he gets all excited. He's like, there's this, like, perfect companion for me out there. She must not be far if this painting's here. So he goes to one of his, like, handlers, you know, and he's like, what are you, and the handler guy's kind of like, what are, you, what are you smiling about? You look like you're excited about something. He's like, I think I'm in love. <laughs> you know? And the handler kind of goes, oh, why who? And he's like, oh, the princess of, you know, that I, I there might have been a name, the princess of something, you know? And, he, and, the, and, the, and the handler's kind of like, oh, how, from, how do you, he's like, well, I've never met her. I saw her in this painting. And the guy's like, oh, well, let's sit down. <laughs> you know? So when you were little, we had to have this play, you know, and we dressed you up as the princess, and that was that's that beautiful person is you, you know, and where does that desire go in that individual when they realize that the beautiful person that they were seeking is you? And in the yoga traditions, this is an analogy for our for our for our desire in general. We want the thing. And the thing is you. Yeah, that's a soul hum. I am that. I am all of this. You know, there's this current that's coursing through everything. And it's coursing through all of us. You know, and our deepest desire is to feel it. And to the extent that we want eggplant parm and the extent that we want a partner and the extent that we want to be closer to our family and the extent that we want a religious experience... It's all this desire to, to feel at home in this world. To feel like, you know, this body, this mind, this state is not a mistake. So there's so many different approaches to doing that. And I think it's really helpful. I know I'm going on and on about the yoga traditions. And... Um, but there's a formulation, but it, it comes from all, it, it all really, really, really comes from the same cultural landscape and the same religious landscape, you know? And there's a lot of uh, 
you can call it, cross-contamination between the traditions, more than any tradition is ever going to admit. you got to go to the scholars to tell you who is influenced by who, because the traditions are defending the orthodoxy. It's like, no, this was handed down, warm hand to warm hand, straight from Buddha all the way to you know us. And it's like, there was no influence from any other traditions. And it's like, oh yeah? Okay, well this Daihi Shindarani, what's this blue-necked one with the weapon in the hand? It's like, oh, that's Vishnu. You know? <laughs> or the blue neck one Shiva. And then there's all these all you know, so we're chanting chants, Soto Zen chants from the Orthodox Buddhist tradition that doesn't go in for gods and divinity and deities and stuff like that. Except except for Avalokiteshvara. <laughs> and except for this hymn that we chant like in Soto Zen monasteries every day to Shiva and Vishnu and no one knows it. Because no one from the tradition and when the traditions describe themselves, they're not describing as honestly as like when a scholar does and when a scholar does it's lacking the heart of the emotional relationship to getting what you want out of the tradition so they're kind of complementary you know and when you have the view of upaya the the truth about the actual history of the tradition doesn't negate the efficacy of the tradition what was i talking about i was <laughs> well, what I what I get on about the deities and stuff? Oh, the purity. Oh, the oh, the yoga, the yogas. Okay, so they had this thing that developed over time. Eventually, kind of started a little bit in the Bhagavad Gita, but then it kind of got it, you know fleshed out a little bit more. And there's this idea that everybody's got different temperaments, you know. And so there's a jnana yoga, which is like you have the temperament for intellect. You're going to understand who you are by dissecting all of the ways that you are and aren't. And there's plenty of opportunity for that in a lot of different traditions. And that's pretty... In Buddhism, the Galukpa tradition of the Tibetans uh, is very much into that analysis. So it's like, let's meditate on how we do and don't exist. If you did exist like this, what about that, you know? And if there is... Let's analyze valid cognition. Let's analyze what the... Uh, valid, what, what's the word that they use? The, the valid basis for the imputation of an object or something like that. They get into all of that, you know? And that's a big part of South Asian religious heritage, you know, that kind of analysis. And that's jnana yoga. And then there's um, karma yoga. And that's like, I'm manifesting my practice and I'm relinquishing my self-interest by actually um, doing work that's for other beings. You know, divesting from myself by doing work for other things. Being in the helping professions, volunteering, you know, volunteering to do different jobs here, you know. That's the karma yoga. That's karma is in action. Activities for other beings. Divesting from the project of me. And then um, there's a raja yoga, which is kind of like what we're doing in Zen. This kind of idea of entering samadhi through meditation. You know, and then having insights in that way. And then there's my favorite and the easiest, bhakti. Yeah. And bhakti's devotion, just just figuring out something you can love so you can have the experience to love. Yeah. And in a lot of the in a lot of the Hindu traditions, it's always there when you get when you talk to yogis, it's like, well, what's the easiest path? Bhakti is the easiest path. And even traditions that really emphasize analysis, really emphasize meditation, needs that spoonful of sugar. Because if you don't have that love in there, then you're just really kind of proud of your realization. You can understand how the world exists, but you're not, you don't have any love. 
you know? And love is like salt. You know? You could have the most delicious ingredients. And if you don't put a little bit of salt, you can't taste it. You know? Um, and people forget to put salt in desserts. You gotta put salt in desserts. <laughs> when I worked at when I was at Tassara, someone was doing my cookies and they're like, any tips on the cookie recipe? And I'm like, double the salt, double the vanilla. You know, you know so if you want to taste your life, you gotta add some love into it. And then it gets a little delicious. And a little delicious goes a heck of a long way. Once you have that little bit of delicious, you're a little bit less stressed out about being a good person or about awakening to blah, 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 you know. You got, you got the love. And then it's like, uh, oh, well, when you got the love, it's like, what I'm looking for is, 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 uh, is right here. You know? It's like, I'm the princess. We're all the princesses. <laughs> so the method for that if you it, it was it was hard going for me because I kept wanting to to just love things but I was too smart <laughs> and I kept talking myself out of it so I'm like well I guess if I do this amount of mental gymnastics then I can rationalize this idea of having a loving God or something like that. <laughs> you know, I'll do it the smart way. Um, but I think uh, you, you just turn your little body-mind into a laboratory for seeing what, what gives you that warm feeling. You know? And, oh, don't be hard on yourself. That's our biggest... That's our biggest thing. It's not that we're not good. It's that we're obsessed about how we're not good. You, know? you ever have uh, you ever have someone um, wonder if they're annoying you, and they ask you, and they ask you if you're sure, you know, and it's kind of like, well, now I am, <laughs> you know, and that we do that to ourselves all the time. You know, it's like, it's not that we're bad, but we're just so nervous about being bad, you know, that it starts to, it starts to manifest itself. We start to think we're bad. Yeah. Everything that you're going through and every way that you fall short or think that you fall short, every t time you kind of snap at somebody in anger, every time you're, you know, your body doesn't feel the way you wish it did or something like that, or you just can't get up in the morning and you wish you could get up in the morning. When I had a Zendo in, in New Orleans, people used to come up to me and the first thing they did was apologize for not coming to the Zendo. I'm at the coffee shop. I'm getting a brownie. And they're like, I'm so sorry I'm not meditating. I'm like, I don't care if you meditate. Maybe I'm in the wrong business if I don't care if you meditate. But like, um, I want you to be happy. You know, you have to apologize to me. You know? For some people... Uh, going to a zendo every day is not as effective for cultivating happiness in their life as going to the rock climbing gym every day. You know? you got to figure out what your energy body's requiring here. Yeah. Mm. So at the end of the... If you're here for the day long, we're going to chant that Tuameva 
and a few other chants. You know, and we're going to rock back and forth. We're going to put our hands on our hearts. You know, oh, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah, everything you're going through makes perfect sense. The way you ended up is the perfect, precise, unavoidable result of everything that's ever happened from beginningless time. The way that you are is not a decision that you made. It's a whole network of causes and conditions that you've inherited. And now the practice life is kind of like, okay, what do we do with this? So your whole personality and your, and your physical abilities and your energy and everything, it's like you, uh, you know, the power's out, the stores are closed, and you open the fridge and that's what you got. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like, what are you going to make? And then the practice life is kind of like, okay, the power's back on. You got the keys to a car. You know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with this? But you still got to use the ingredients that you got. You got to start with the ingredients that you got. So this is a very strange analogy that took a lot of turns. <laughs> and it no longer makes sense. <laughs> but uh, what's, it, what else, what's it like? Okay, well, you got... You got <laughs> let's do another dumb analogy. Uh, you got too much pepper in the soup. You know, what are you going to do about it? There's, there's ways you can work with this. You don't have to just serve it. Or you serve it and say, there's too much pepper in this soup. You know, you tell your friends. You're like, you know, I have a hard time um, listening to two things at once, so I need one of you to talk to me at a time. And you don't have to beat yourself up, you know. Little things like that. Things like that where we just wish we were different. You know, just tell people. Yeah. Um, for those of us in the day long, we're going to have a period where we get to talk about what we're going through and ask questions and be a community. But um, we have a few minutes now as well, especially if anyone on Zoom or anyone that isn't staying, but even if you are staying, and if it's something that's alive for you right now. Because sometimes we feel, uh, if we feel uh, bold enough to be seen, sometimes we've got to seize on that moment because sometimes they go away. Yeah, sure. I just want to say thank you. I, I needed that message. Oh. I, I just genuinely did, and I think, I think the world does. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Choro. How come you didn't stay in the ashram? <laughs> um, That's a good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I got what I needed. And, you know, what's, I, I was talking to someone about this the other day. Communities, especially residential communities that are kind of big institutions that have a kind of robust training paradigm and, a, you know, uh, it's kind of like when you go to the pizza shop. Did I talk about this last week? Did I talk about the pizza shop last week? Oh, okay. When you go to the pizza shop, I feel like I've talked about this a lot. If you've had PD with me, I may have mentioned the pizza shop. Um, the right hand of the menu is the build your own and the left hand of the menu is the ready-made ones, you know? And so it could have 50% ingredients that you like and it could have 50% ingredients that you don't like, you know? And so it's up to us to figure out where the scale falls on that. Do we want to put up with the onions and the mushrooms so that we can have the pepperoni and the gorgonzola or whatever? 
you know, or is it worth it for us to build our own, which is kind of like living out in the world and having an autonomous life and coming to a Zen center where you're not like enmeshed in some kind of institution where that's the beginning and end of your life, you know, and there was enough there to make it not, not what I wanted. They didn't need me. They didn't need someone going, yeah, but Buddhism, you know, it's so smart. Trust me, you know, um, and, uh, a lot of those places, a lot of the big residential places are really trying to promote and sustain their own orthodoxy. And I think most of us need to actually, the stakes are too high to not receive teaching. And the stakes are too high to only do one orthodox way and not do, and not, and not do what works for you in every facet of your life. Because there's no kind of top-down kind of awakening kind of thing. You know, all the years in the monastery are not going to... I knew people that were literally <clears throat> addicted to like hard drugs and they could live at a residential monastery for like six years and go through all the chairs and become the Fukuten and become the Tenzo and then become Shuso and all that. And then they leave and guess what happens? None of that was transformed by their practice. You know, because you actually have to do the thing that meets the need. If you want to go on a vacation, you can't just go, oh, vacation. You know, you got to like get on Expedia or Kayak or whatever and get the ticket. You know, so all of the little things in your life, there's aspects of it that aren't met by going and just like checking yourself into um, spiritual rehab, you know. Anyway, this got tangential. It wasn't, that was the answer and more. You know, just, yeah, dwellings on it, yeah. And I was already a priest and I feel committed. And it was kind of like, there might be people that are involved in what we do that also want, could hear this take a little bit, you know? I don't know. I don't know if it's arrogant, but I'm like, I want to I wanna go where Orange and Azendo now. I don't want to just be here and do this thing. I want to reunite some things that because of 2,000 years of men arguing with each other and deciding what orthodoxy they belong to kind of uh, separated holistic practices from each other and be like, in my school, we only do this. You know, it's like, oh, well, that's good for one temperament of person, you know. Yeah. Oh, we got Jose. Yeah. Can we hear you if you talk? Try it. Uh, hi, Coach. Hey, yeah. Great. Um, thank you very much uh, for the uh, nice analogy between love and salt. Um, uh, and I agree that, or devotion and salt, and I agree that uh, a little bit goes a long way. I was wondering if from your experience you can recount any instances you've seen of over-salting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, that's probably, that's part of why I didn't say in the ashram, too. There's, uh, I call it bliss washing. And it's, uh, there's, um, well, let's think of that parent, you know, the parent that is, has the, has the child that's going through something, having some kind of difficulty, having frustrations and stuff like that. And if you're super dismissive of that, because you don't want to hear clouds on a rainy day and you know that they're not understanding the situation anyway. Oh no, I, you always say that wrong. You're not listening to clouds on a sunny day. And like, there's that kind of, um dismissive of the real things that people are actually going through, 
you know? And so there's a lot of people that uh, have a little bit of a maniacal positivity, you know, because it seems like the best medicine. And that's because I don't have the bandwidth to actually be with the things that are kind of part and parcel of being embodied, you know? There's a story of um, Maizumi Roshi watering plants in front of uh, the Zen Center of Los Angeles. And a, um, a, a man that appeared to have been like maybe unhoused and, and, and drunk came up to him and he goes, you know, kind of slurring his word, and he goes, what's it like to be enlightened? And Maizumi goes, it's depressing. <laughs> you know? So having this, this space for the whole spectrum of experience, and, and you can be in touch with the river of joy, you can be in touch with love, and your love manifests as concern, you know? And your love manifests as being affected by those that are around you. And to reframe that as not the enemy of love, you know? It's actually, if we didn't have love, we wouldn't get sad, you know? So, to, um, so I think there's... Uh, too much salt is kind of like um, thinking that love and positivity and pleasantness are kind of like the 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 rule of the day every day, you know. And that um, is really, really alien. It alienates you from others and it alienates you from yourself. Yeah. And there's this th- yeah. There's a thing in like uh, in the. Uh, like Gaudiya Vaishnav tradition, where it's like, Krishna doesn't want your sadness, you know? And it's like, then why would he give it to you? (laughs) You know, know, our sadness is what connects us, you know? That's why we like Morrissey. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Rich. So, um... I'm hearing a theme, if I may. Yeah. Last week, your talk about your experience with your, you know, uh, becoming a priest and all that. And this week, also, I hear what you're talking about is, from my mind, you're talking about suffering. Mm -hmm. You're talking about how do we relate to our suffering? Mm -hmm. And how do we transform it into something, into joy? Yeah. yeah. And love. Mm -hmm. I think that's in, I think that's in our tradition. Mm -hmm. It's just not always spoken to very clearly yeah. sometimes, like suffering. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like, well, just contemplate emptiness and it will, how is that going to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I, I agree with what you're saying that mm-hmm. sometimes we, we emphasize that sort of emptiness as a sort of a spiritual bypass almost. Like yeah. we're not listening to, we, we don't want to hear the suffering of the world sort of mm-hmm. and extend compassion and loving kindness and you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, but I think it's in our tradition. It's just not, I think maybe it's a misinterpretation of our tradition. Like, we sometimes, some people say there is no, in Zen there is no compassion. Uh-huh. Even though, if, from what I've heard, if you go to Japan, the Avalokiteshvara is all over the place. Yeah, and yeah. And very important. Yeah. But we don't necessarily know that because how we've, we've interpreted it yeah yeah how we received it yeah you know, definitely it becomes it's become something else yeah yeah Our, I, the way it's landed here mm. it's not about being open to suffering of, of people yeah it's being care and caring and compassionate you know mm. 
So I'm just saying, I, I, yeah. I agree with what you're saying, but I think it's, it could be in our tradition. I absolutely, I totally agree with you. I think it's there. And that's why I'm not like leaving the tradition, you know? And I think it's present. I think one of our issues is who is interpreting the tradition for us at the early days of it kind of coming to the English-speaking Americas. And it was kind of coming out of this, you know, uh, early 20th century Kyoto School of Philosophy in Japan that was trying to prime things for Western intellectuals. So a little bit of the heart of it got zapped out there. Then you had the Western intellectuals taking it and turning on for the next generation. You got to lose a little bit of it there. Part of what they're impressed about of Suzuki Roshi was feeling totally accepted by him, you know? Um, and, uh, and some teachers hold that up, and some people, and, and some people it comes and goes, you know? One of the negative things, I think, is that a lot of people practicing Zen in the U.S. have never really seen the function of a Zen temple in, in that context. What we're doing is kind of taking the monastic model and putting it in all over, you know, dotting the landscape with this monastic model where there's no families, you know, there's no, there's, and a temple priest in Japan is not a monastery teacher. He's not going around hitting people with sticks. He's not telling people to correct their posture. Not telling people to wear, you know, modest clothing and stuff like that. It's like, you know, come as you are. This is a community center, you know? And I think um, there's always been a bit of a schism in, in um, uh, between Zen centers and Zen temples. You know, or Buddhist centers, meditation centers, and Buddhist temples, where the community aspect is a little bit late to arrive, I think. This happened in the Hare Krishna movement, too. Everybody thought they were, like, devotees of this guru. And then when um, immigrants from South Asia were coming, and they were, like, starting to create, you know... Uh, and the, and the white devotees got to see the, the Indian families, how they engaged with the tradition. They're just like, oh, this is just like church. <laughs> you know, we're not like super, super mega yogis, you know. It's not this like rarefied special thing. You know, we can like uh, have meals together and like hang out and like, you know, dance and sing songs and stuff like that, you know. So I, I feel like I just need to, for me, uh, I... In terms of what was available to me, I got to look outside to piece it together a little bit, you know. But I think it's present, and I think there's no reason to not have it. You know? Yeah, if I would just add, you know, if you want to, if you want to learn about love and that sort of compassionate devotion side of things, I would say come, come with me and do flowers, mm. because it mm. is very much about that kind of devotional sort of love yeah. and care and joy. Mm. But uh, I would like to share that with you. But I'm just saying, I think it could be here if you want to make it here. Yeah. If you want to bring it to it. Yeah. You know yeah. So. Yeah. Engaging with the altar, dusting the altar, you know, sifting the incense. It's, it's all creating the offering, you know? The yogurt. offering that you can relate to. What's that? Pour some yogurt. <laughs> no yogurt. <laughs> 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 but uh, you know, maybe marigolds, maybe a garland of marigolds. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and thank you for being here, and thank you for um, being open-hearted. I feel like you're all open-hearted, to the extent that I can tell. <laughs> thanks so much for being here and, and and joining with us. And if you're here for the retreat, thanks for. 
opening our little container for folks that are just here for the morning. Thanks, everybody.